As a child, I made people laugh, but adulthood has rendered me anxious and afraid to be funny. Knock Knock Me Again follows me on an anxiety-inducing experiment to discover whether I can learn to be a stand-up comedian. I travel to people's living rooms, sit them down upon their sofa and perform comedy at them, an excruciating encounter for both parties. My guest and I then discuss the experience over a cup of tea. What went well, what went badly and most crucially, why? We discuss topics such as context, environment, zeitgeist, subjectivity, comic timing and lots more. My journey is a piece of social, psychological and philosophical research addressing questions about mental health and human interaction. This experiment will span one year from Christmas 2022 to Christmas 2023 when I'll hopefully give a live performance to a crowd having learned whatever I've learned along the way. This podcast makes the most sense when listened to in order since a narrative runs through it. I'll be releasing new episodes throughout the year and I'd love for you to join me on my journey by subscribing to my podcast. I'm Tana Chamberlain and this is Me Again. Wish me luck. You're going to give me a score out of 10 and any opening remarks. I'm giving you an 8 for being... Make, for provoking the, so the much score thought. Out of 10 might seem quite harsh. Um, <laughs> still eating biscuits. Actually, you provoked a lot of thought. The material was really funny. I'm going to give you a six. Maybe I wasn't, maybe it wasn't so funny. <laughs> but some of the delivery um, maybe let the material down. I was actually pretty happy with the jokes. I think a lot of the jokes were good. A solid uh, four after. <laughs> but as a first effort, I thought, good. And then you came in and were, were playing this very kind of uncomfortable and isn't that what comedy is for it's to make you think so hard is it mega well we laughed a little too almost anti-social kind of (laughs) were you expecting me to go at every every joke i was expecting you to be a bit more generous i'm glad (laughs) (laughs) it's like why are you so awkward but before we get into all that Let me tell you a story. When I was small, my mum, my brother and I called ourselves the Thumbs Up Gang. Because of a family crisis, we had fled to England with no money. It was the mid to late 90s. Mum found us a place to rent and acquired various jobs to make ends meet. Because we were tight for cash, we'd make homemade gifts at Christmas. My brother and I used humour to get us through some of life's tougher challenges. And so we started exchanging joke gifts. Presents with the sole purpose of making each other laugh. They started small and gradually became grander and more creative. One Christmas, still of primary school age, we went to my auntie's house in Wales, where we all opened presents round the tree on Christmas Day. I opened my joke gift from my brother. He'd bought me an aggressive-looking handsaw from Woolworths. The room rang with gleeful laughter. (laughs) The handsaw was a ridiculously unsuitable present, and that was funny. A few minutes later, my brother opened his joke gift from me. I was confident that the room would again rock with the chortles of a well-appreciated joke. Instead, the room fell into disquiet. (coughs) Nobody knew what to say or how to react. This gift I gave my brother is difficult to explain, but I'll give it a go. By then, we'd had no contact with our dad for a number of years, and we never, ever talked about him. I think we just didn't understand how to. One Christmas, a few years before this one in Wales, out of nowhere, our dad had sent us a box of stationery. 
That was the last we heard from him, and we never, ever spoke about this box of stationery. Until that Christmas in Wales, when I filled a shoebox with pens, labelled it Love in a Box from Dad, and wrapped it up for my brother to open under the tree. This was the first time I'd experienced the horror of a joke landing badly. My brother laughed, but I hadn't for a second understood that it could be upsetting to anyone else in the room. I just thought as a child that, though it was sad, it was in some complex way funny that we'd never spoken about that box of stationery. I presumed everybody else would understand my thinking and find it funny too. I would come to learn that it is often difficult to translate a funny thought from inside my head so that others can experience it in the same way as me. I would find that this problem would return again and again through my life, leading me to miss the mark with humour and occasionally upset people. When I was about 16, I was involved in a sort of school variety show. Some people sang, some people danced, etc. There was a new girl who'd transferred from a school in Slovakia who'd signed up to the variety show to give a speech about the importance of recycling. She was probably the only one of us empathetic, mature and wise enough to use this platform in such a way. She asked me to help prep her speech to ensure her English was sound. As she rehearsed her recycling speech to me, she consistently referred to recycling as recyclation. I found this funny. I told her that I found this funny. She laughed. Encouraged, I suggested we put a big screen behind her as she delivered her speech on the night, a screen which corrected her mispronounced words to match the rhythm of her speaking. So every time she said recyclation, on the emphasised beat, the word recycling would appear in huge letters behind her. This would happen with several other words too. I thought it was somehow charming and sweet. I have to confess that I also believed it to make her speech a little less boring. Anyway, she agreed and I prepared the slides. We went on stage and delivered what we'd practised to a full theatre. I got in trouble. The headmaster said that my slides illustrated bullying and discrimination. Of course, I see what he means. It hadn't been my intention to be unkind at all and I was very upset by it. In the years since, I never did ask this girl how she really felt about the slides. Maybe they upset her, maybe they didn't. I wish I knew, but we aren't in touch. A few years ago, there was some meme or other doing the rounds where you'd lift your arm up high and sprinkle a lot of salt on a plate of food from a good metre above the plate. It was really funny. I don't even really know why. Something about the spectacle, the arrogance, the superfluousness or the impracticality. I don't know. I just know it tickled me. And it led me to perform some incredibly misguided banter at a barbecue. On the kitchen table, there was a vase of lovely flowers and I salted them using the metre-high technique with the intention of making my host laugh. But it upset her, and of course I understand why. In hindsight, it was a confusing thing to do. She'd bought some lovely flowers, and I've covered them in salt without explanation. And at that time, we didn't know each other as well as we do now. Just with my love in a box from Dad and my recyclation slides, I'd again misunderstood the difference between making a joke and being out of order. This, I was learning, was a difficult line to walk, which seemed only to be getting harder and less forgivable over time. The issue is that I really, really want to be a good person. I care about environmental issues now. I care about lots of things and it hurts me when I hurt other people. I suffer with anxiety, OCD and depression. 
I also have ADHD, but I'm not sure how relevant that is, except that it's making it very hard to write this episode. I digress. In recent years, I've become so scared of misguided humour that I'm now, in social situations, often afraid to try. Recently, I wrote a list of values on my whiteboard, the sort of thing no one would ever have done 10 years ago before self-care became popular. It had several things on there, but I want to address two of them side by side. One, compassion and kindness to others. And two, authentic laughter. A big part of my journey is to explore to what extent these two things can coexist. Let's for a moment address authentic laughter. (laughs) When we watch comedy, we understand when to laugh. We've learned the rhythm. (laughs) But how often, not just watching comedy, but when socialising or even networking, do we laugh authentically? And how often do we laugh from obligation or habit? There are so many factors which I believe contribute to inauthentic laughter, such as peer pressure, gender rules that teach us only to deliver a certain type of humour that fits with our gender, or seeking social media engagement by following learned algorithms, or alcohol culture teaching us that outrageous equals funny at any cost. My headphones are falling off. We'll briefly address each of these one by one. Peer pressure. When I was 14, an unusual song became popular. It was a parody of the jam song Going Underground, and people called it the London Underground song. For clarity, I'm going to sing a verse and chorus to you. But please be aware that you might quite rightly find it aggressive, vulgar, and incredibly insulting. It also contains bad language. Some people might like to get a train to work or drive in in a Beamer or a Merc. Some guys like to travel on a bus, but I can't be bothered with a fuss today. I'm gonna take my bike, cause once again the tube's on strike. The greedy bastards want extra pay. No one knows what note that is. Sitting on their ass all day. Even though they earn 30k, so I'm standing here in the pouring rain. Where the fuck's my fucking train, London Underground? They're all lazy, fucking useless cunts, London Underground. They're all greedy cunts, I want to shoot them all with a rifle. I'm appalled that I've just sung that, but I think it's necessary in order that we can collectively remember quite how strong the song's sentiment was. Because at the time, knowing that song was the height of teenage humour and fashion. Without really understanding what it was about, we'd sing it all the time. One of my childhood friends was caught teaching it to his six-year-old sister, and he got in trouble for teaching her bad language, but not for the dangerous impact the message might have upon her. It crossed none of our minds. Recently, a friend of mine had to get involved in an incident at her daughter's school to address a toxic culture in a friendship group, the christening shoes culture. To christen someone's shoes is to wait until somebody comes into school with a brand new pair of white trainers and essentially stamp all over said trainers until they're completely ruined. Most kids call this banter. Most reasonable adults call this outrageously out of order. Chanting offensive songs and christening shoes in the name of comedy are examples of peer pressure. Well, just don't join in, I hear you heckle to my teenage self. It's a good suggestion. But I'd like to offer some context. Context which I think many might relate to in some way or other. The context of bullying. 
Boarding the school bus to my first high school, older students would routinely jeer frizzball and head over to me to explain, repulsed, that my frizzy hair resembled a frame of pubes around my face. Oh, oops, dropped my phone. And when I got into class, I newly understood that, and there's no better way of putting it, people found me annoying. Annoying and weird. I recall once a kid in my class said right next to me, Oh, do I really have to sit next to Tanner, miss? It's not fair. This sounds incredibly mean, but I was honestly used to it. I'd understood my place in the world by then. The teachers didn't even tell the kids off for this sort of thing because they found me annoying too. I'd get told off though, all the time. I began gradually to feel deeply that I was disgusting to people. Disgusting and annoying. I was gradually becoming very confused about how to behave. If I was well behaved, I was picked on for being a loser. And if I acted out, I was ostracised for being annoying. I was learning that I couldn't win. Once a confident child, I was starting to experience anxiety, OCD and depression, the cocktail that would only worsen over time. So you see, when something is deemed cool at school, like an offensive chant about the hard workers on the underground, anyone who remembers high school will know that you just learn to find it funny and you'll survive another day. Gender. I went to two secondary schools, the first of which was bleh, the first of which was a state school in Sorbridgeworth. We had some funny class clowns in this school, the ones that would interrupt a teacher with a silly comment and the class would erupt into laughter. I'd laugh too. It was normally pretty funny. But class clowns in the noughties, that's the two zero zero zeros, not naughty, do you know what I mean? Bleh. Cut that bit. Uh, um, but class clowns in the noughties had one thing in common. They were all boys. Having grown up with an older brother and male cousins, etc., I was used to boyish humour. But you couldn't really class clown as a girl. It would be received as vicious and confusing instead of playful, and the teachers would hate it, though they found the male class clowns endearing. Fast forward to adulthood. I think that for good reason... In a patriarchal society, women must empower one another. I believe that this makes banter between women more complex than banter between men. This is an incredibly vague and limiting assertion, but I intend to explore it more in my journey. To start with, I'll leave you to think about an incident where a book was thrown into the sea. Two years ago, I went on a wonderful holiday with a big group of friends. One day we took some boats out to sea to explore, pulling up on various pristine beaches. We were playing music and drinking and dancing. One of the girls had a book with her that she was reading throughout the holiday during down moments. One of the boys, in a moment of excited banter, threw this book into the sea. Similarly to my salting the flower, the joke was that this was an outrageously unacceptable thing to do. That was the humour in it. We carried on having a lovely day and didn't think much more about it. Now, I'm a mostly polite and accommodating woman. I'd like you to imagine that it was me that threw that book into the sea. And imagine how different the reaction would have been. It would have been just so, so incredibly out of order. Alcohol. 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 
alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. That's a hard one. At some point, just before adulthood, we enter the world of alcohol. This happens to be around the same time that we start to enter the big wide world of scary new social circles. Alcohol removes our ability to make well-informed decisions, meaning that we lose our inhibitions. In these terrifying new social situations, we see this as a good thing. We relax and have fun. What happened to me at 18 is that many of my peers considered me worth hanging out with only when I was drunk, because by their reckoning, I was fun or funny only when I was drunk. So I continued to drink to blackout state several times a week. What actually was happening was that I was destroying my mental health by succumbing to peer pressure and people pleasing. So, and so the message is reinforced to us over and over again, that outrageous behavior, even unacceptable behavior, is the only thing that makes us worthy. Without this, to my peers, I was worthless. And over time, we learn that outrageous equals funny, no matter the damage. And we gradually lose, gradually, and we gradually, and we gradually, and we gradually lose access to what we really find funny deep down. Social media. Most of us are familiar with the phrase, felt cute, might delete later. But for those that aren't, it comes from the anxiety one feels about posting a picture of themselves on social media, only to withdraw it afterwards, deciding that actually perhaps they didn't look as nice as they originally thought. In lockdown, I repeatedly experienced, felt funny, might delete later. 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 I'd post something on my Instagram story that I thought was funny. Lots of people would view it and nobody would like it or comment. And appalled by embarrassment and shame, I would delete it and try to forget it ever happened. Social media encourages us to regurgitate the same type of humour that's been pre-approved to protect ourselves from shame and embarrassment. Just as it teaches us that posting any photo of a dog will gain 200 likes, whilst posting something raw and original is likely to be entirely ignored. By the way, sometimes I record my self-voice messages when I can't sleep. And all these things restrict us and teach us the rules behind how we should be funny instead of teaching us to be authentically funny from inside. I also want to say that, um, talk about stand-up and say, when you go to stand-up events, quite often literally not one thing actually makes you laugh authentically but you sort of laugh generously at the better jokes because it's sort of the laugh is actually sort of just a round of applause to say yeah fair play but you do it as a laugh because that's the currency in which you exchange congratulations at stand-up events it's not la like you're not it's not funny it's just a just a currency la authentic humor is what i'm striving for here on this journey but that's not to say i always do it successfully insert something from an episode but that's part of the journey by now i hope you understand at least partially what i mean by adulthood rendering me anxious and afraid to be funny but the glaring question is why do i want to be funny Well, I'll start by saying something incredibly risky. I think I am, deep down. 
but without the confidence to express it outwardly, it often feels trapped inside, which isn't a good feeling. So how can I learn to communicate my inner humour in a way that connects with others, collectively lifts us and doesn't upset anyone? After all, laughter and connection has to be the key to solving the world's problems. And I say that with no irony. There are lots of types of comedy. So why specifically stand-up, I hear you ask? Well, because it has a clear and simple structure and a clear and simple purpose. We all understand what it is. It's one person taking the stage alone and trying to make people laugh. Because of its simplicity, it should be clear to see if I'm succeeding or failing. And also because it's fucking terrifying. Stepping outside of our comfort zone is the only way to recover lost confidence. So this is my plan. For each episode, I prepare a brand new five-minute comedy set with different themes and topics, sometimes an entirely different style of comedy, just whatever I come up with. I perform it to my guest and we discuss how it went. I have never, ever done this before. I'm making it up. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've watched stand-up before. I know the general idea, but that's it. I'm in the shed with a pad and paper, closing my eyes and making it up. I also wanted to explain that... Um, I'm not using any guidance to write these stand-up routines that I'm delivering. I'm literally just sitting in the shed with a notepad and pen and just closing my eyes and thinking, what should I do? And then that's what I do. That's, that's my method at the moment because... That's, you know, I want to start from a place of authenticity, even if it's terrible, because that's the whole point in the process. So each set I've written, rehearsed and performed in the space of about a week, whilst continuing with work and other commitments, whilst also teaching myself to create, produce and promote a podcast all by myself, which turned out to be bloody stressful. Maybe I can preface it with, I have no idea how to make a podcast, by the way. I'm making this up as I go along. And I'm doing it completely by myself, so feel free to call me out if I've done something terribly wrong. Also, sometimes I like say the wrong word and don't realise it and it's really cringe. So I don't have anyone checking what I'm saying, so that could happen a few times and I'm embarrassed already. But please let me know when it does. So I've not sat with the material for long before performing it. It's always pretty raw. Over the last month, I've recorded three of these. I'm going to record a fourth on Christmas Day with my family. Then I'm going to take a step back and review my findings so far. The three sessions I've recorded so far have thrown up things I wasn't prepared for. Everything you hear is as it was, despite the temptation at times to pretend it never happened. I believe we have to be vulnerable to grow. We have to be unafraid to share our process. We must stop pretending that everything is instantly perfect. We must collectively try to teach ourselves to be not only unafraid of reality, but excited by it. We only have a few years on this wonderful earth to work out what really makes us laugh deep down and how to express that to one another. This experiment will span one year from Christmas 2022 to Christmas 2023, when I'll hopefully give a live performance to a crowd having learned whatever I've learned along the way. I'll be releasing new episodes throughout the year and I'd love for you to continue on my journey with me by subscribing to my podcast. 
You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Knock Knock Me Again 113, which has visual versions of all my comedy sets to date. Well, videos of me rehearsing them at home. Finally, I'd love your feedback. Since I'm performing to just one person at a time, it will be so valuable to me to have a range of other opinions on how I'm doing. You can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or comment on a YouTube video, or you can contact me directly by following me on Instagram, TannaCJC, where I also keep behind the scenes videos in my story highlights, if you're interested.